Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 39. And I got to remember my glasses because I'm getting to that age now. So verse 24, Jesus is speaking. He continues and he says, The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man, a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now in our study tonight, we're going to unpack some more truth from this large passage that we began to open up the last time we were together a month ago. Now, in verses 24 and 25, though, we see Jesus saying that the servants should not expect to be treated any different than their master or their teacher. Do you see it there in verses 24 and 25? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Now, look closely at what he says here. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, and that means they accused him of doing his work by the power of Satan, how much more... Will they malign those of his household? By the way, on our cruise, if you don't know, we're going to be doing the study of the how much more passages of Scripture. And the more I've studied, the more I realize we can't get them all in. There's too many of them. And this is one we won't cover in our cruise. But I look closely. If they said that Jesus had a demon, how much more will they be bold enough to accuse us of being crazy, insane, demonic, and so what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to show you from Scripture, and you, some of you may not know this actually happened. They actually said that Jesus, God himself, who took on flesh, they said that he was being empowered by demons. Go with me to John chapter 8. Look at verses 48 through 59. In John chapter 8, look at verses 48 through 59. It says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? And have a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and as did, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. 
But you have not known him, and I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out in the temple. So here's Jesus in amongst his own people, the Jews, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and what are they saying he has? They saying he has a demon, and they just they they absolutely hate him and they want to kill him. Go to chapter 10 here in John. Go to chapter 10, look at verses 19 through 21. It says there was a division again among the Jews because of his words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there was division, and some people said that not only was he a demon, they're now saying he's what? You just read it right there. Insane. By the way, some of you may not know this. Did you know that his family thought he was insane? Go with me to Mark chapter 3. Go to Mark chapter 3. Look at verses 20 and 21. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And if you follow this story, this is when Jesus is in the house and teaching, and there's so many people they can't get in, and his mother and his brothers are there wanting him to come out. Why did his mother and his brother show up at the house? They thought he was insane. So folks, remember what Jesus said at the beginning of our study here. He said, it's, it's, you should expect that the, the, te the teacher and the, the student should be similar. In other words, you can't expect the student to be greater than the teacher. If they said that I have a demon, and I do what I do by Beelzebul, and they think I'm crazy, don't be surprised if they think you're crazy as a follower of me. And actually, how much more will they be bold enough to accuse you of all this stuff? Yet, I ask you a question here. Why then do we put so much emphasis into being accepted by the world? When Jesus said, they're not going to like you, they're not going to accept what you have to say. Interest, I'm, I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick. Something God showed me while I was in New Hampshire. For years, we've looked at that passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, where the scripture says that the fields are wide unto harvest, but the laborers are few. And you've heard me say before that Jesus quickly points out Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. He doesn't say, we need more laborers and you need to get out there. He said, ask God to send laborers into his harvest field. But listen to what God opened my eyes to. In Matthew chapter 9 is when he says, pray the Lord of the harvest or the laborers are few. In chapter 8, he had just said that wide is the path that goes to destruction and many go that way. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And what? How many? Few there be that find it. He had just said in chapter 8 that the number of people who are actually going to be saved is few. By the way, that blows away all of our big talk about how we're going to, Christians are going to change the world for Christ. It's not what the Bible teaches, folks. But if Jesus had just said in chapter 8 that there will be few who are saved, we shouldn't be surprised that there are only few laborers. And actually, God began to open my eyes to the fact 
that we for years have read that Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest and the laborers are few, and that means we don't have enough laborers. Isn't that how we've had it taught to us? There's not enough. We need more. But Jesus doesn't say, pray the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. Just pray that God would send his laborers and actually listen to me. I believe the scripture teaches we should expect God to do an amazing work in this world through the few. We think if we had more workers, we'd get more done for God. Isn't that how we've heard it preached? If we had more people out there witnessing, if we had more people, how much more could we? And the focus goes on us. Actually, if you study the scriptures, God's forever knocking the numbers way down so that he gets the glory. The Midianites come to attack Israel and Gideon's hiding and God says, hey, I want to use you. And of course, Gideon says, I can't do it. And God empowers him to round up 32,000, which compared to the number of Midianites was nothing. And then God has him take those 32,000. And if anybody's afraid, let them go home and 22,000 leave. He's down to 10,000. He says, have the 10,000 go drink in the, in the river. And those who have drunk in this manner are the ones that I've chosen. And he knocks the number down to 300. And God did that mighty work with few. I want to challenge you tonight to stop thinking that there's not enough laborers out in the harvest field. He had just said in chapter 8 that the number who are going to be saved are few. The fields are wide unto harvest, and there's only a few laborers because there's only a few that are truly saved. Yeah, we need to be willing to be used by him. But if he does his work through the few, who gets the glory? God does. Yet what we've done, because we think it's up to us, and we want to make the world like us, and we want to get everybody saved, and we think we're going to change the world, even though Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Because we've had this mindset that it's up to us and we need to do a better job, we have over the years ignored the fact that Jesus said to them from the beginning, and I'm not done showing you passages, they're not going to like the message, they're not going to like you because of the message, and yet we ignore that and we try to come up with ways to make our church palatable to all these people so they'll feel comfortable here. On top of that, even if we do understand that our message is an offense, that causes some of us to stop sharing the message. There are those of us who aren't trying to make everybody happy, but we also, because we know it's offensive, we're afraid to share it. Because if we share an offensive message, how would they react or feel about us? And again, our attitude is about us. Folks, the more I dive into this book, the more I realize God wants to be everything. It's all about him. Go to John chapter 15. Look at verses 18 through 21. In John 15, look at verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Yet, underlying a lot of our attitudes is we want to get people to like us, and we want people to accept it, and we want people, and how can we make it palatable? Jesus said, just share it. I love Paul's attitude. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, when I came, I didn't use man's wisdom and 
flowery speech to impress you it came in weakness and fear and trembling, by the way, which is the opposite of how preachers are taught to preach today. They got to be flashy and powerful and effective. But Paul said, I came in weakness and fear and trembling so that your faith not, might not be in man's wisdom, but in the power of God. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, if what you hear from me makes sense, God opened your eyes. If you don't understand it, you don't reject it, Satan's blinded you. Folks, I want you to hear me. As we get closer and closer to the end and the return, the world is going to keep hating us more and more. And the more we try to make everybody like us, the less and less effective we'll be because we'll be working against what the Bible teaches. And unfortunately, we'll compromise the truth. We won't share the truth and we'll weaken the truth by, share, by not sharing it. And the salt will lose its saltiness. Go with me to a passage that some of you may not have ever seen before. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you got excited when you read that? That does not get a lot of press. That's not a passage we've heard preached on a lot because that's, that doesn't fill churches. But look at what it says. Indeed, certainly, believe this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, um, that's even going to happen in our churches. Paul even dealt with that in the whole book of Galatians, and he talked about those who were actually trying to live by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and let the Lord lead them, are going to be persecuted by those in the church who are trying to put people back under the law. The Bible says that the message of the gospel of salvation, of there being their only one way to be saved, and that through faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross, the Bible says that's an offense to the world. It offends them. And we're going to talk about why in just a second, but if you don't know that, I want you to see it. Go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse 11. I just referenced this book that Paul wrote to the Christians there in the church in Galatia. And they had begun in the spirit and now we're trying to perfect themselves in the flesh. And there are a lot of teachers there who are trying to teach them. You have to work harder. You have to do these things. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, that's the law, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So here Paul calls the cross an offense. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter clarifies it for us a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 8. By the way, if you're getting tired of changing, turning pages, I had a month off to rest, so watch out. 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 4 through 8. For if God... Nope, I'm in 2 Peter. Let's go to 1 Peter. That'll make it easier here. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to verse 4 real quick. As we come to him, a living stone was what? Rejected by men. But in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So I'm going to ask a question tonight, because we need to understand the reason behind why they hate us. It's easy enough for me to stand up here and say, hey, they're not going to like you, they're going to hate you, blah, blah, blah. But why? Why do they hate us? Well, there's lots of reasons, but the deep root is the scripture says that the gospel that we've given our lives to and are sharing, it's an offense to the world. It offends them. They don't like it. You know why? Well, one, the gospel says that they're sinners and guilty before God, as we were. By the way, does the world want to hear that they're guilty before God and they're sinners? No. It, it, that's a really good way to put it. They call us self-righteous and holier than thou, yet they're the ones who think they're righteous in themselves. Yep. Yep. That's true. And as Susan just pointed out as well, unfortunately, in those, and I'm going to say who claim Christianity, there's a lot of self-righteousness as well because they think we're okay, we're better than people and all that. We, that's why I put in my notes, there's, it's, the gospel says they're sinners and guilty before God, as were we. We need to keep that in mind. Also, the gospel says that they can do nothing to save themselves. The gospel says they're powerless to do anything about it. Not only are they guilty before God and destined for hell, they're nothing they can do about it. By the way, that doesn't make the flesh happy either. Our flesh wants credit. And folks, if you don't understand that about yourself now, you need to. You still, even though you're saved, deal with the flesh. That's why daily we have to lay it on the altar. That's why daily we have to deny ourselves and yield to the Spirit, because your flesh is still there, and your flesh still wants credit. In Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to go there, but you know, when God created Adam and Eve, and then Satan came and tempted them, what was his offer? You get to be like God. You get to choose right and wrong, good and evil. You get to be in charge, and they bid. Because of that, it's been passed on to us, and folks, I don't care how much you try to deny it, you want to still be God because of your flesh. You want proof? Have you ever been upset when God didn't do something the way you wanted him to do it? You ever been a little upset with him? A little, how could he? Why didn't he? Well, that's just your flesh wanting to be in charge still. I've talked to people over the years and they say, well, how could a loving God? I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. You seem to be wanting to judge God. Oh, I would never judge God. Yeah, you just did. Yeah, you just did. You kind of put yourself here and said, if, he, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Folks, we all have this problem, but the world doesn't understand it. That's why the gospel is an offense to them. They're powerless. Now, in these next set of verses, Jesus continues his teaching about not fearing God. Uh, sorry, not fearing man, but fearing God. Go, go back to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 33. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. By the way, let me do something real quick. How many of you here, show of hands, are, can honestly say... That if you died today, you know you'd go to heaven because of Jesus Christ and not because of you. How many can honestly raise your hand and say that? All right, put your hands down. Have those of you that raised your hand, how many of you were able to raise your hand because you're smart? How many of you were able to raise your hand because you figured it out? 
How many of you were able to raise your hand because of anything you did to raise your hand? No, no, it's all by him. It's all by him. Then why do we think he needs our help? Our flesh. Why do we think some people do a better job of preaching it than others? Because we think man's flesh has something to do with it, folks. If I can do anything in the days that are left, I'm going to be hopefully used of God in my own life and in your life to be used of him to help you understand what it really means to deny your flesh. Because if we remember what Jesus said in the end of our study, those who aren't willing to deny themselves have no part with me. They're not my disciples. It doesn't say deny themselves of what? It, it, well, it, it deny our flesh. We need to we, and that takes on many different forms. Look at verses 26 through 33 in Matthew 10. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, so have no fear of them. These are the, the world of men, if you will, mankind. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. By the way, I love how Jesus stood before Pilate. And Pilate's standing there saying to him, with all his power and authority, don't you realize I have the authority to have you put to death or have you released? And Jesus calmly looked at him and said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless my father had given it to you. Yeah, but how many of us still worry that man's going to have some kind of control over our lives. How many of us really understand who we are in Christ? Keep reading. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but then cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And for your sake, listen closely, that's not Satan. I've asked too many churches over the years Who's God talking about? And they'll say Satan. That's not true. Satan does not have the keys to hell. Jesus has the keys to hell. Satan is getting cast into hell himself. He doesn't have the authority to cast you into hell. God does. Jesus is saying, fear God. But then he goes on and says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father and who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit today and hopefully be used to God to help you see how this manifests itself. But we all struggle with fear of man. All of us. And I'm going to share some of you who think, I don't care what man thinks, how you actually struggle with it in ways that you don't realize. So stick with me here. The Bible says that when we fear man more than God, we're trusting in man more than we're trusting in God. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, look at verses 25 and 26. In Proverbs 29, verses 25 and 26, it says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. Look closely at what he's saying. If you're trusting in man, that's going to be a trap. Does anybody know? There's lots of reasons why. Can anybody give me a reason why trusting in man is a trap? No? Well, keep going. Think about this for a second here. If I'm putting my trust in man, is, is there a possibility man's going to let me down? Well, I might have just stepped in a trap. 
Um, does man have all power to fix all things? You see, I might have just stepped in a trap. There's lots of reasons why trusting in the Lord, then you'll be safe. He's never going to let you down. And he's got all power. There's more that I could get into, but for the sake of time, we're going to keep moving. And then he goes on and he says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it's actually from the Lord that a man gets justice. Go to Psalm 118. Back up one book to Psalm 118. Look at verses 8 and 9. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, I've shared this story in the past, but I'm going to remind you of it. If you haven't heard it, this will be fresh to you. But years ago, in our ministry of living off of people's donations and God's provision through people, I would go to the P.O. box, and when there were checks, I felt good. And when there weren't checks, I was a little discouraged. And I got tired of the roller coaster. And so I walked away from the P.O. box one day and said, Lord, all it takes to run this ministry is 115000 roughly. That's pretty much our budget, 115000 $120,000. I don't get all that, but that covers travels, expenses, everything. And, and I said, Lord, for some rich Christian millionaire out there, that's pocket change. I'm tired, Lord, of being excited when there's money and down when there isn't and worried and all this stuff. Lord, could you have some Christian millionaire who's rich call me up and make me this promise that he would make sure the ministry had whatever it needed and I don't need to worry about it ever again and I would just go preach. Lord, I would love to be able to just go preach and not worry about money. Would you make him promise me, have a millionaire call me and promise me, Jim, don't worry about money ever again. I will personally make sure that you're taken care of. And now, I'll be honest with you, I prayed and I believed God would do it. Five minutes later, as I was driving away from the post office, God spoke to my heart and he said, why didn't you believe me when I made you the same promise? And it hit me, folks. I would believe it if a man made the promise, but hasn't God promised to meet all of my needs? Hasn't God say, you just go do what I tell you to do. I'm going to make it work. I had more trust in man than I had in God. And then God spoke even a little bit more. He said, let's just say, for example, a man did call you up. He's going to die one day. Then what are you going to do? Folks, we don't realize that we all fear man. We all put trust in man more than we realize. We also, listen closely, I'm going to give you a definition of fear that will help be helpful for you for the rest of our study and hopefully for the rest of your life. Listen closely. To fear someone, biblically, is to give them honor and reverence and authority in our lives. I want you to hear that. That's going to be our definition, and it's going to make sense in a little bit here. To fear someone according to the biblical definition of fearing them is to give them honor and reverence and authority in our lives. Now, we fear man when we think that they have more power over our lives to harm us than God does to protect us. You're in Psalm 118. Look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He actually trusted in God to protect him more than he trusted in man to harm him. 
Write this down, look at it later on. It's Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The scripture talks about don't put your confidence in, in money, but trust the Lord. Can we can confidently say, God has said, I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you. What can man do to me? Folks, some of you have probably been done wrong by individuals financially over the years, or someone else handled your money inappropriately, or someone scammed you, or whatever. Look, folks, the moment you start thinking man has more authority to harm you than God does to protect you, you're putting a fear in man more than you are a fear of God. You're giving that person honor and reverence and authority in your life instead of God. Jesus said, don't fear man. We also fear man more than God when we want their approval more than God's approval. Go to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 22. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign, that a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all that were praising God for what had happened. For the man on the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here, Peter and John had healed this man, as you know, and they were brought before the same group of men that had put Jesus to death. And those people, again, just like they were around before they had Jesus killed and did it in the middle of the night, were more worried about what the people might think. And they said, don't talk anymore. Don't preach anymore in this name. And, and, and Peter says, look, you tell us, which should we listen to more, man or God? But I have to be honest with you, we all struggle with the fact that there are times that God wants us to share and God wants us to speak, but we're worried that that person might not like me anymore. We're wanting God's approval less than we want man's approval. That's a fear of man. Now, I've got to be honest with you, folks. Every one of us, even preachers, struggle with this. So, how are we going to be able to overcome this? We're going to get up in the morning and we're going to have our three-by-five card in the mirror and we're going to get ourselves all rooted and rah-rah, sis boom ba. I'm going to go speak for the Lord. I'm going to do a better job. Is that how we're going to get the power to do this? No, we actually deny ourselves and say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your power. See, listen closely. This is where I want you to hear. Some of us say, I don't care what man thinks. And there are people out there that are like that. But that doesn't mean they're trusting in God. See, to, it's one thing to turn away from seeking man's approval or trusting in man. It's a totally different thing to turn to God for His protection and His approval. Otherwise, you're simply trusting in yourself and you're still fearing man more than God. You just happen to be the man. You've given honor and reverence and authority to your own self instead of God. 
So I'm not talking about people all getting up and saying, I don't care what man thinks, I don't care. By the way, the Bible's really clear. The gospel's an offense by itself. Christians aren't supposed to be offensive. But I've run into too many who claim Christ, who are proud of the fact that they're offensive in how they share the gospel. Oh, the Bible says the gospel's an offense. That doesn't mean that you're to be offensive. You're to share it with love and power through the Spirit and let the, work, the Spirit of God do His work in their lives. It's not you who's going to win them over by being a jerk. But listen closely. To just say, I don't care what man thinks, is not fearing God. That's why you need to, when man says we want you to fear us, turn to God for His power and His grace. We just left off here in Acts chapter 4. Let's keep reading in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through, their, who, through the mouth of our, David, our, father, our, uh, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did their boldness come because they got up that morning and chanted a few things from their 3 by 5 card? No, that's putting confidence in your flesh. Their boldness came because they denied themselves and they went to the Lord for His power. And they walked in His power by His grace. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You cannot resist the devil by yourself. He'll whoop you. And daily, even though He lives within us, we need to yield to the Spirit and say no to the flesh. Were you about to say something? All right, okay. Go back, go to that passage I just quoted to you in James chapter 4. Let's, let's keep reading, though, past verse 7. There are some things there that a lot of people, we kind of stop at that one verse. James chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 10. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let me ask you a question. Is James writing to believers or unbelievers here? He's writing to believers. He's clearly writing to believers. And listen to what he's saying. Um, guys, you need the Lord. You need the Lord. Are you saying we're not saved, James? No, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying that you've learned to live in the flesh more than you learned to live in the spirit. And you have to learn on a daily basis to deny your flesh and say yes to the spirit. We're so in want of approval, we actually care more what people think than what God thinks. And look at what he says. But if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. 
If you actually on a daily basis, thank God we're already forgiven of our sins that are going to separate us from him and we're going to heaven when, when we die. But at the same time, daily, in order to walk in the spirit, in order to be filled or under the control of the spirit, we have to be saying no to the flesh. And that we lay down and give him control of our lives. And that has to happen daily and throughout the day. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to remind you of it. Do you know why God's mercies are new every morning? Because your flesh gets up every morning too. You need it. You need his mercies every single day. And if a Christian truly understood this and stopped, like we were touching on how some people start to think, well, I'm righteous now because of Christ and I'm better than... No, no, no. Um, we all were offended by the gospel at one time. Until God opened our eyes. Yep, that's true. As Miles just brought out, how many people throughout our lives who have been our friends who have gone by the wayside once they started to change and him do his work in us? Folks, it's going to happen. That's okay. We're to keep living for Jesus. Again, we're not to try to be offensive. We're not to try to be rude, but not to be surprised when the world doesn't accept us. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, when it says, don't fear man, but fear God, Jesus is speaking to them mainly, though, about fearing God for our eternal destinies. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but it cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul, body and soul in hell. Listen closely. When Jesus is talking about not fearing man, as I brought out, there's lots of different levels to that. But the context here he's talking about fearing God for our eternal destiny. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, you don't have to turn there, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. This is the first fear of God that we must have because it is the beginning of wisdom. Being afraid of the fact that God has the authority and the power to throw us into hell, both body and soul. We need to get to that point. Again, we live in a world where most people out there, even if they acknowledge God, are going to go, I think I'm all right. I think the big guy upstairs is going to weigh my good and my bad, and I'm going to be all right. They have no fear of God when it comes to their eternal destiny. We need to have that, and hopefully you've had that, and that's what brought you to Christ. You're realizing that you are separated. You are a sinner. You were guilty, but he has now made you righteous through faith in him. When we understand his holiness and our lack thereof, we are to respond appropriately and to fear and respond with a holy fear response, which, as we've already said, is to what? To give honor and reverence and authority, full authority in our lives. Uh, how many of you remember when you took psychology, the fight and flight response, fight or flight? I'm going to show you that there's actually fight, flight, and nothing. There's actually three responses to fear, and they're in the scriptures. I want to have you write them down. You can look at them later on. The fight response we see in Joshua chapter 2. If you would look at Joshua 2, we're not going to turn there because of time. If you look at Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13, you'll see that when the spies go into Jericho, Rahab shares with the spies of Israel that a fear of the nation of Israel and their God had come upon the whole nation and they were trembling. But how did the Jerichoans respond to that fear? They tried to fight Israel. You can try to fight God. Who's going to win? God. By the way, Rahab had the proper response to fear and she was spared. The rest didn't, and they were destroyed. Rahab gave reverence and honor 
to God and gave him full authority in her life. The Bible says that there's another fear. We learned about it in psychology. That's the flight response. That's to hide and to run. If you were to write this down, look at it later on in Genesis chapter 3, verses 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. We see that when Adam and Eve sinned and they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, their first reaction when they saw God was now what? They were fear, afraid, and they hid. They said, we heard you walking in the garden and we were afraid and so we hid. By the way, um, can you hide from God? Is there anywhere you can go that he's not? So fighting him ain't going to work. That's the wrong response to fear. Hiding from him isn't going to do you any good. How many people say, well, I don't even know, I don't believe he exists. The Bible says that everybody knows he exists. There's no such thing as an atheist. They're just cowards. They're not willing to admit the Bible says that, and it's true, they know he's there. They think that they're just, remember when your kid was little and you played peekaboo with them or they played hide and seek and they thought this meant you couldn't see them? That's what the atheists are doing. But there's a third response. And again, write this down. You can look at it later. It's in Matthew 25, verses 24 through 30. Matthew 25, 24 through 30. The third servant in the parable of the talents said, I knew you as a hard man. Gathering where you hadn't scattered seed, and I was afraid, and so I did nothing. It's kind of like the old deer in the headlights. You remember, remember the deer in the headlights? By the way, how's that work out for the deer? Doesn't do you any good. You can fight him, and you ain't going to win. You can run from him and hide, and it's not going to do you any good. Or you could just stand there paralyzed and do nothing. It won't work either. But there is a holy fear response, and that is to give him honor and reverence, and full authority in our lives. How do we do that? We run to Him. You run to Him, and you fall on your face, and you fall on your knees, and you say, you are God, and I'm not. You're holy, and I'm not. And you're the only way I can be made right through what you have already done by living the life I could not live. And by dying on that cross in my place and by rising from the dead, your word says that you will give me eternal life and righteousness, and I need yours, and I receive it today. Now, listen closely. Too many of us stopped praying that after we got saved. Don't hear me wrong. Once saved, eternally secure. But there's a daily process of him taking control. It's a sanctification. It's a learning to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 25, so if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? In the same way, we go to Him on a daily basis and say, Lord, thank you for my salvation, but I cannot live this Christian life that you have given me to live apart from you, because apart from you, I can do nothing. You're the one with the power, not me. You're the one with the grace and not me. You're the one with the ability and not me. And I want to live for you today, but I can't if I try it on my own strength, but I run to you and I give you honor, and I give you reverence, and I give you full authority in my life. Would you do what you want to do through me today? And the Bible says he will empower you to live the Christian life. But now, interestingly, in our passage, and I was hoping we didn't run out of time before we got here, and I'm glad we didn't. Jesus goes immediately, though, and says, right after he says, Fear God, who can send your body into hell. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. Isn't that interesting? He goes from saying, fear God, to don't be afraid. Sounds a little psychotic. Actually, it 
sounds even more so in Luke. Look at Luke's account of it. Go to Luke 12. In Luke 12, look at verses 4 through 7. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So which is it, God? Do you want us to fear you or do you want us to not fear you? Well, the answer is in 1 John chapter 4. Go to 1 John chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'm going to just kind of set the stage for you for what we're about to read. Once we respond appropriately to our fear of God with a holy fear response, we move from being objects of God's wrath to His children and we should no longer ever fear the punishment of hell. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear, this type of fear, has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen closely. The fear that we are to no longer have is the fear of what? God? No. Fear of punishment. The fear of punishment is what we need to no longer fear. That is removed. So as God's children, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Hopefully it's not that hard. As God's children, should we no longer fear God? No, we are to still fear God. We're no longer to fear His punishment. We're no longer to fear His wrath. Again, I'm not going to go down this road because we're going to be covering it in one of our messages on the cruise ship. But in Romans chapter 5, the scripture says that if when we were His enemies, He sent His Son to die for us, how much more now shall we be saved from His wrath because we're His children? We're going to get into that how much more passage that I can't wait to, but I'll save that for the cruise. And if you didn't sign up for the cruise, get the videos when they come out. So here's the deal. As God's children, we should still fear God, but no longer fear His punishment for our sins. We should no longer fear His wrath, because His wrath has been totally satisfied on the cross. That means everything that comes to us from God's hand, whether we think it's good or bad, is coming from His hand of love, and it's for our best. And then we should relax in, our, in His presence, but we still fear Him by doing what? Giving Him honor and reverence, and authority in our lives. Listen closely. Go to Psalm 34. Go to Psalm 34. Look at verses 1 through 15. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 15. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Listen to what he says. He says, I want to teach you the fear of the Lord. Do what he says. Give him honor and reverence and authority in your lives. Because if you don't, he's going to get you? No. Because if you don't, you're going to miss out on his good. Now, folks, when God began to open my eyes to this, it totally changed me as a parent. See, I had been taught to parent the rules. And I was not their daddy. I was their judge when my kids were little. And I was making sure they followed the rules. And if they didn't follow the rules, the hammer came down. And some of you were probably raised that way as well. But your fear of your parents wasn't an honor and a reverence and full authority. Your fear was the belt or the stick. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I think the Bible teaches that there needs to be discipline. But I was more focused on whether or not they were obeying the rules. And I wasn't a true picture of who God is. But when I started to understand the heart of God toward me, it changed me as a parent. And I actually started to focus more on honoring and blessing my kids and treating my kids so that when they did need correction, it was so different from what daddy was normally like. You understand what I'm saying? This change happened, I'm going to tell you, about 15 years ago, my kids could even tell you, there was a change in daddy, because it was no longer about the rules, but it was about their heart. And I actually became the guy who blessed and gave things away and treated, and we did lots of cool, fun stuff. And then when they needed correction, I had already proven my love to them, to the point that they understood that this was coming from my love, not dad's mad again. See, when I was younger, I thought I was helping my kids by correcting them all the time. My heart was in the right place. My intentions were good. But did they hear my love for them or did they hear dad's never pleased? They heard God's never pleased. And many of you see God in the wrong way. You think he's all about the rules. He's really not. He's a good God. Oh, taste and see that he's good. Those of you that think that you have to work hard to get his approval or you have to do good today or else he's not going to bless you, you don't get it. The young lions suffer hunger and want. But those who seek the Lord, those who fear the Lord, who give him honor and reverence, lack no good thing. Folks, I'm not a health and wealth guy, but a lot of us Christians are missing out on a lot of the blessings that God has for us. Yes, financially and other ways, because we don't understand his heart. 
Doesn't he teach us to be generous and to share because we believe that he'll take care of us? Doesn't he say, test me in this? Doesn't he say, watch how I will pour it into your lap and you'll overflow? He teaches us that he is a good God. To fear him is to give him honor and reverence and full authority in our lives. And I don't want to miss out on his blessings. I'm not afraid of him smacking me anymore. He never intended to smack me once I became his child. That's why we can have confidence on the day of judgment, the scripture says. Go to Acts chapter 9, look at verse 31. You want to grow your church? The answer is right there in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So which is it? Fear the Lord or the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it's the same thing. Actually, to fear God is to give Him reverence and honor and full authority in our lives. And when we do that, He pours out His Spirit, giving us peace and joy. Even in the midst of struggle, we know that we're okay because God's with us. And if we were standing before a governor or a pilot who says, don't you realize I have authority? You can look at them in peace and say, you have no authority over me. My Father gave it to you because my Father loves me and He's already proven it through the cross and I'm His child and He's going to take care of me. But what's happened is, is we lose sight of this truth and we look at all the other stuff that's happening financially or relationally and health and all this stuff and we start to give more honor and reverence and authority in our lives to these other things. He says, come back. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Cleanse your hands. Mourn. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Humble yourself and run back to your daddy, and he will lift you up. He'll exalt you. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Isn't that interesting? Peter wasn't saying, get out there and change the government. Now, please don't hear me wrong. We've been blessed by God to live in a country where we can have a say in the political process. But don't think for a second that if we change all the rules in America to be Christian rules, that America's going to become a Christian nation. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not going to be the case. We're to be faithful, and we're to honor the government that we've been under. Why? Because we're really honoring God by honoring the government. We're really trusting in the Lord and not in the government. The moment we start thinking, we've got to get things changed in the government, we've got to get this, we've all of a sudden put our confidence in who? The government and us and man and not God. So there's a balancing act that we've got to understand. 
that if God wants to do something, he's going to be the one that has to do it. And we, on a daily basis, deny our flesh, and we say yes to him, and he will lead us in how we're to live our lives. Now, as we close, I deal with too many people that send me emails or contact me who are continually being tripped up as Christians by the passages in the book of Hebrews and other places that look like we need to be afraid of God because he's going to get us and send us to hell. If you go and read the book of Hebrews, you'll watch it go from, don't be afraid, you have an anointing and you know the Holy One too. You better watch out, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we see Christians who are like, so do, do I be afraid of God because he's going to send me to hell or should I relax because I'm in the spirit? Which is it? Sounds a lot like what Jesus said, wasn't it? You better fear God. Because he has the authority to throw your body and soul in hell. But you're of more value than the birds. And he knows the number of hairs on your head. And he doesn't want you to be afraid. So which is it? As I talk to a room full of people and through the internet and the, the, the blessing of the people whose gifts are in this way and the people around the globe who are listening to these Bible studies. By the way, we get a report every month of where all around the globe people have been listening through the computer to the Bible studies. It's mind-blowing. More than we ever could dream of what God's doing. So the people that are listening, the question is, should you be afraid of God throwing you into hell, or should you relax and not fear his punishment, but go to him and enjoy his, his presence as his child? The answer is, it depends on where you stand today who's listening. That's why the Bible's full of relax and warnings. If you're in Christ and he's given you his spirit and he's sealed you by his spirit, he says to you, we have come to believe and to know the love as God has for us because he's given us his spirit and we no longer fear judgment because that fear has to do with punishment and perfect love has cast out that fear. But when I talk to a room this size, it doesn't mean that everybody here is in that position. And if you still are separated from God, you better be afraid because if you take your last breath tonight, you'll end up in hell. Let me ask you a question. Who's sufficient for these things? I mean, who's sufficient for preaching this kind of a message? I mean, did you hear what I just said? I just said that some are going to hear this and go to hell, and some are going to hear this and go to heaven because of Jesus. Who's sufficient to share this message? None of us. But our sufficiency comes from Christ. And so stop thinking, if I word it better, maybe they'll believe it, or if I say it differently, or maybe I should have said this, or folks daily learn to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus and let him do through you what he wants to do and you know where you stand and the spirit of God will show you whether you're his or not if you're his he's a good God relax years ago there was a, a couple that used to go to this church when I was pastor Bob and Edie Ash and when I was in this journey of moving from legalism to grace, moving from trying to earn his approval to accepting his approval. One day I was sharing some of my stresses and Edie Ash looked at me. We were sitting at a restaurant over here on A1A. She looked at me and she said these words. She said, Jim, love God easy. Just love God easy. In other words, you're making this way harder than he ever intended for you. And folks, let me just say, I want to say to you, if you're his child and he's confirmed it through his spirit in your heart, take a deep breath 
He loves you. He cares for you. And he's wanting you to just run to him and fear him today. Give him honor and reverence and full authority. Just do what he says. And he will bless you, I promise. If you don't know him, you better stay afraid. But he wants you to not be afraid if you'll run to him. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.